Hi, and welcome back to the Future of Figure Skating. A quick reminder before we start, the Future of Figure Skating and Anything GOEs is currently hosting a book club. We are reading Little Girls in Pretty Boxes by Joan Ryan. We'll have a live stream conversation and that will be shared on this podcast later on in the summer. But if you'd like to join the conversation live as we read the book and discuss chapter by chapter, you can do that by joining the Discord channel that Anything GOEs runs. It's also a great place for discussing news and competitions and everything in the world of figure skating. You can join the Discord and participate in the book club at patreon.com slash anything GOE. And I hope that we'll see you there. Now on to this week's episode. Today's guest is Talia Barrington. Talia is a former competitive ice dancer and ballroom dancer and is currently a master's student at the NYU School of Journalism. She recently wrote an article for Slate entitled The Once Unthinkable Revolution Coming to Figure Skating about the changes to allow teams of any gender in ice dance in Paris. Talia broke the news that the ice dance technical committee of the ISU is considering putting forward a rule change at the next Congress. In this episode, we talk about why this change would be revolutionary and what figure skating can learn from the world of ballroom dance. Talia, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for coming on. Thank you so much for having me. I love the article that you wrote for Slate. You encapsulated so many of the different elements around having pairs of any gender that I'd been thinking about. And also you broke several very exciting pieces of news in that article as well. How did you get the idea of doing this piece and how did you get interested in the story? Well, I kind of fell into it, to be completely honest. I skated growing up. I wasn't able to sort of have some of the success of um, some of my friends now and some of the people that are in the article, of course, but it was a world that I was part of. And some of the experiences of young girls, women, and of course, boys and and men and people of any gender, um, they were things that I witnessed and experienced myself. Um, And I actually, I actually started writing a piece that was much more centered on you know, how women's bodies are policed and controlled in athletics. And more from the angle of, you know, women's bodies are so strong and we're learning how with the correct training, we can do so much. And that was kind of the angle that I was originally, and I I did actually pitch that to Slate. But while we were having conversations about that, Maddie Hubble, Madison Hubble, who, full disclosure, is a good friend. She texted me or called me, I don't even remember, and said, hey, guess what? This thing is happening. I was just at this meeting, you know? And so we were talking a whole bunch about the possibility of same gender, of what it would look like for two women, two men, um, non-binary people who can authentically be themselves to be part of a team. And it just kind of went from there. (laughs) Yeah, that's great. So you are also, I think you just finished getting a degree where you're look, you're in cultural studies. Is that right? Tell me more about how the, the writing and are you going into journalism? Like, how is that part of your life? Yeah. <laughs> yeah. So when um, I moved away from skating, I was offered the opportunity to, to get into the ballroom industry. Um, and at the, at the beginning, I didn't think it would be like a, a long-term thing. I was kind of in this transitional period wasn't really sure what was next. And I just, it's such a like 
incredible warm world and I just kind of really just felt very um like it was sort of fulfilling some of the things that I hadn't fulfilled in skating I started competing uh, dancing around the world around the country um teaching it was you know a really great industry to be part of and I'm thankful for all of those experiences and I don't want to completely step away from that but um also I've always wanted to write it's something that I've always enjoyed doing I'm a big reader and especially with the pandemic, but before, even before the pandemic, I kind of started thinking, okay, how do I make this a bit more of a reality? So I sort of was like, well, you know, I'm not 21 and I can just like start like at a job, like I should probably like get some education behind me. And so I, I went back to school and then I went into this graduate program um, at NYU that centers on cultural reporting. And so that's what I'm doing with that. That's really exciting. And that's a fantastic thing that you're, you know, one of your first like big bylines in this. I know you've done other things, but like this is you're getting to combine something that has those parts of your prior experience with where you're hoping to go next. Yeah, it's funny. I like at first I was like very much resistant, honestly. And a lot of the professors and advisors were like, well, you have access to this world. Like, it's so interesting to people. Like, why wouldn't you write about it? And I was like, no, 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 no. I don't want, like, that's, you know, that's not for me. Like, I put all of that behind me. <laughs> but, you know, they were right. And there are so many interesting stories. And it is such an interesting lens through which to see greater cultural topics. So that's really why I, you know, I... I just sort of leaned in. <laughs> what surprised you the most while you were researching and writing the story? You know, in all honesty, what surprised me the most was how open and willing to talk members of the ISU and USFS who I spoke with, how, yeah, how open they were. You know, I think there's this perception, which which maybe comes from a little bit of of truth from the past. I don't know. Um, of the of especially the ISU being like this sort of big behemoth, very gate kept, very you know inaccessible. And honestly, the several people that I spoke with, one of whom is on record in the piece, they were wonderful, very open and interested and willing to have a conversation about the topic. And that really surprised me. Yeah, that is really interesting. That yeah, there is that sense that. They're over there, very mysterious. The proclamations come down, and you don't know, you yeah. know, all of that yeah. kind of yeah. kind of feeling. But it is that is really great, and um, I was shocked that there could be change that's actually coming from within the ISU rather than kind of waiting for that to be forced from the outside. I, I know it's not nothing is a, a done deal, and it's very complicated with all of those politics, but I was working on and off on a piece looking partly at this change, but also sort of looking at how transgender skaters are treated within federations around the world, because there's a lot of variety and a lot of variety and what kinds of policies, if there are policies, you know, and finding it, you know, challenging in some ways to get comments on yeah. all of that. And but when I had reached out to the ISU yeah. back in the winter, I got a, you know, a, a very you know, official response saying, um, you know, well, any federation can bring us a proposal at the next Congress, you know, if if they want, anyone can do a thing. And so I was thinking, you know, OK, so we'll be coming from the outside then, even knowing that Caitlin Weaver is on the technical committee and that there was an inside piece happening, too. 
the speed and willingness to talk about that as an open process also very much surprised me, but pleasantly surprised. Yeah. I mean, I think, I think it's all bi-directional. I think that if things weren't coming from the outside, I'm not sure that people would be, I don't think that that response would even be available. Having people like Caitlin Weaver, who is such an incredible human and such, such, such a champion for this cause and just for human rights. It's, it's a very important thing to have her there, but she's not alone. You know, there are lots of people within a wide range of identities that are within the ISU. And I think there's a recognition now that, you know, that times are changing and that as a result, the structures that support, you know, these institutions, they, they need to change as well. You know, it's interesting, even talking with people who are absolutely would support human rights and then the ability to express yourself as needed, who are of an older generation, they're still like a little bit stuck with like, oh, well, that would be, that wouldn't work. How could you have two women competing against two men? That's just not fair. You know, all of this stuff, which like, I'm sorry, but I, I know of a woman who can do press lifts with other women, like overhead lifts, death spirals, all sorts of incredible things. So, you know, all of that's just to say that I think it's coming from both directions and, and we're navigating these things in in all sorts of different arenas. Like look at what's, you know, look at what's happening in swimming, look at what's happening in all of these sports, um, especially with trans athletes. So it's time for the conversation, at least. I think what you're getting at with both that issue of people don't believe it until they see it. And that being so important with what Maddie and Gabby are doing. And then that question around strength, which it's interesting that that's where the conversation about gender so quickly ends up there when that's only, you know, one part of skating. It's interesting that people who in other ways would resist so much the idea that what they are doing and what they're teaching and what skating is like comes down to just the physical strength of people then that's where their mind goes though when they start thinking about a team that isn't the man lifting the woman yeah no absolutely I think figure skating honestly like the more that I've looked into this and the more I've sort of found myself part of this whole debate Figure skating is kind of a great sport for this conversation to play out in because it is so multifaceted, you know, like, yes, you need to be very, very, very strong, but you also need to be dexterous. You need to have good connection. You need to have performance skills. Let's be real. You know, musicality, all of these, all of these, this huge range and plethora of skills that like, I just think that bodies are almost not the point anymore I think there's a lot to be had within figure skating I think I think it's just a great sport for this conversation to happen in yeah absolutely and the more I look into it the more you start finding examples within synchro within other parts of the sport sort of that might be happening outside of the competitive areas that people are used to looking at where people are already doing so many of these elements yeah a hundred percent yeah. Were there things that you, you know, wanted to look into with this article that you didn't have time to go into or that, you know, you would, would have liked to expand more? Um, definitely. Um, you know, when I was initially having pitching talks with Slate, they gave me 3,000 words that sort of ballooned to like, I think one of the, the drafts was like almost 6,000 words. Then we like had to be like, okay, okay, you know, <laughs> people aren't going to read that. Um, 
And so I think it ended up at like 4,500 or something like that. But yes, I would have loved, and I'm sort of hoping that this can be a follow-up, if not in Slate, then at a different publication, kind of more of the history. You know, obviously a lot has been put out there about the gay games and, you know, what happened in 1998 with them sort of cracking down on that and then everything pursuant to those years. But I also just think that even within the competitive realm, the elite competitive, excuse me, there's just this huge irony that it's this sport that the outside world has always sort of perceived as quote unquote homosexual. And yet it's so, it has been so restrictive to people who are of that community. And I think, you know, so much has changed. The fact that nothing was said about Timothy LaDuke competing in the Olympics, I think was both positive and negative. Um, I think it should have been, there should have been a bigger deal made out of that, but then also we didn't want any problems associated with that. You know, I think so much has changed. However, I think there's a lot of more room for growth and acceptance and sort of redefining why does it matter what someone's sexual orientation is, you know, or gender identity is in a sport. A lot more to be said on that. (laughs) And I wish I could have put it all in the one piece, but that just wasn't going to (laughs) happen. And it being a sport where there is this storytelling and expressive piece of it, there is by definition sort of that tension between what is the story that you're telling about yourself on the ice and off the ice and what that says about the message you're sending to judges and all of that and how much of that is connected to who you are authentically, characters that you're playing because that's what you want to do and that's fun, characters that you're playing because that's what you feel like you have to do or you should do. So there's all of those questions about identity and expression are so interesting and really play out in a level that's so much more complex in a judged sport and in an artistic sport than in a lot of other places. So you layer that on top of the dynamics around LGBTQ participation in sport um, that might exist in something like basketball or swimming. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Look, I think that humans are just innately attracted to the love story. And I think that it is something that we are all drawn to and find thrilling and beautiful. And so I think that is always, you know, there's always going to be a draw to telling a love story on the ice. However, how many brother and sister teams have we had? And successful ones, beautiful skaters, you know, and so I think that it's, it is already proven that that's not the only story that there is to be told. To the end of the day as well, there's also like acting, you know, <laughs> like, like how many, how many LGBTQ Hollywood actors are playing, you know, whatever role and no one bats an eyelid, you know? So I just sort of think that, um, that by limiting people as to the ways that they can perform, you know, you're, you're limiting the sport and you're you're limiting the ways that art can be perceived. We want to be like, oh, it's a sport, it's a sport. It is a sport, but as you say, it's an artistic sport. And so maybe two men will team up and, and one, one program that they'll put out will be a love story. And then the other will be, you know, the like bros hanging out at a bar. Like, I don't know. Like, like, like it doesn't matter. 
as long as it's interesting. I think there's a lot to be explored there. And I think that that was kind of something, what was really nice is that just about every single person that I spoke to kind of spoke to that point in some way or another. And uh, I think, I also think, you know, there's, there's the side of things as well. And I sort of say this a little bit in the piece, I think this is a sport that has enjoyed extreme popularity, but it has, that popularity is waning or it has waned. And I think it's because people are seeing the same thing over and over again, especially for people who don't know, you know, they don't know that people are doing more intricate edges or like greater rotations of twizzles or whatever. They don't know. Like, yeah, the lifts are a bit more exciting than they were 10 years ago, maybe. Um, but, But people don't know. And so by putting out a different type of story, a different image, we're really giving the sport an opportunity to grow and the viewership an opportunity to to regain interest. Yeah, definitely. I think that's one of the tensions that I have run into is this idea. And I think it often, I mean, it plays out for people of any gender, but it maybe especially plays out for male skaters that there's this perception that like the sport would be more popular if it was less gay. This idea that like what we need to do is appeal to the mainstream and make like it be, you know, the men's be more manly and athletic, that that's what people want to watch. And I I think it's so misguided. It feels like it's always been misguided about what people draws people to skating in a lot of ways, but especially now. But I still hear that from people, even from people who are working in other ways to try to make the sport more inclusive. And so it's it's an odd dynamic to have that still be a part of the conversation. I loved the part that you included from your interview with Scott Moyer, because I think about his perspective talking about the pressure that was put on him and Tessa to be a romantic couple and to have the story that they were telling on the ice also be who they were on the ice. If we can't separate acting from the people, then of course, it's already twisting the conversation so much. Yeah. Totally. And like, you know, I grew up in the UK and like, you know, that was the same, you know, obviously like before before my time, but like that was the same that happened with Torval and Dean. Like when you see old interviews, like the first thing that was asked of them was like, okay, but like, be honest, like you're dating, right? You know, (laughs) and yeah. And I mean, like the way Scott has come around to, I mean, it was beautiful. Like I I spoke with him for, you know, quite a bit longer. We didn't end up putting um, too, too much into the piece um, of what he said, but, you know, he's just, he's had to take it as a compliment because, you know, it means that they were telling the story so well. But I also think, I don't know, I'm of two minds whether it kind of like is almost denigrating of the sport because it's people are like, okay, whatever, you're amazing, an amazing athlete. Cool, cool, cool. But are you dating? <laughs> like, I don't know what, like that's kind of like, well, not the point. But then again, like he said, on the other hand, it means that they were telling a story so well and people were really enraptured in it. And, and that's a wonderful thing. So yeah, I don't, I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I always think about that as a journalist too, that part of what makes, you know, people interested in watching the performance on the ice is knowing about who people are off the ice and about, you know, about their journey and about the relationship of whatever kind, I think can be one of the most interesting things to understand about a partnership. And there's a boundary there. And, and of course, that can influence people. But there's also acting and storytelling and the choices that go into that. And I see that come up a lot in 
the reactions that I saw to your story and to overall to the idea of same-sex teams where the people on the team, so they may or may not themselves be queer, and certainly whether or not they are, they may or may not be like in a relationship of that kind. But I would see people say, oh, it's so cool. Look, you could have two women having this story that's about friendship. Like it doesn't have to be romantic. And then other people push back against that and be like, but what's wrong if it is romantic? And we want that. So there's there's almost a go too far in trying to point out um those things but yeah I tend to see it as like that full picture absolutely yeah. like what you just said I think I think it's that it is a full picture I think people you know it's the internet and uh, <laughs> people like have that idea that they really want to get behind and I think the reality is is that it's all of the things yes we should be telling queer stories and yes we should be telling stories about two women or two men being able to just be friends, you know, it can be all of the things. Um, and I think that's what I would, you know, want to push forward is that, um, you know, like I said, it, maybe a team who is or is not queer would do one program where they're telling a love story and one program where they're not, you know, or a mixture of both, you know, I hope that it can be all of the things. I think aside of all of this, that I guess essentially is kind of the route that I took into this story is looking at how we have this sport, which is so predominantly filled with all of these incredible, talented young women who pour so much of their heart and soul into training and really never get to compete. They never get to get out onto any type of stage, let alone the world stage. And so there is a whole side of this that would enable them to get out there. And a lot of people, <laughs> I, I had some comments from people being like, well, but, you know, they might not be very good, you know, and athletes, like, they really want to show the best of themselves. And I was like, you think they'd rather train every day and not do anything than maybe team up in a team that isn't the best? Like, I, I can't even speak that it would be, it wouldn't be the best, but let's just say, um, like, of course, they would want to get out there and, and get some experience. You know, having said that, there is still some resistance because now it's this strange thing, right? Like a lot of young girls, they they don't want to ruin any chances of getting a quote unquote real partner. And uh, so they're, they're afraid of that. But I think once it becomes more normalized, why wouldn't you spend a season or two getting experience at the very worst case scenario? <laughs> why wouldn't you spend a season or two getting experience with another girl like I don't know anyway I think there's a lot to be unpacked there and I'm excited for queer stories to be able to be openly told and I'm excited for different types of stories to be able to be openly told yeah and I'm excited as well for what that that could mean for more freedom within teams that are a male female partnership as well both from a technical perspective in that if you have more skaters of any gender learning to skate with different kinds of people and do you know maybe they've tried both lifting and being lifted with different people that they're going to become more well-rounded skaters but also in some ways I think the most radical story that we could be telling is of you know if there was a team where there was a woman who was lifting the man and even if with very otherwise those people could be telling a very traditional romantic heterosexual cis story but in that framework would it's I think be a very revolutionary thing in a lot of ways still so there's there's so many different possibilities 
that's where it happened. I mean, we've back into like the early 2000s, there have been teams where the, the woman's lifted the man. I, I see no reason why, especially, especially with the rules changing. So they have all of these like cardio lifts sort of being expanded upon. Um, that's obviously changed things a fair amount since, since then, since the early 2000s. Um, and so I see no, no reason why not. Um, and yeah, in the, in these traditional teams, you're absolutely right. It will expand and push people forwards in that direction as well. You mentioned some of how you got into this was looking at some of the gender roles and the pressure on women in skating and other sports, like coming at it from that angle. So how do you see this change around team composition being supportive for women in the sport? You talked about providing an opportunity for competition, but I think there are other elements beyond that. Yes. So this question really was how I started all of this, looking at teams, and I I won't name names right now, but looking at teams where the size disparity between the partners is not super huge. And just the endless barrage of comments and negative comments that the women would receive from a young age. And like, I witnessed this firsthand myself, you know, being part of the world, like so many memories that I sort of buried until I started thinking about this again. And it's so absurd because then at the same time, these teams are going out there and being rewarded essentially for their ability to do more exciting, interesting elements. And yet the women are still receiving negative feedback about their bodies. It's like, well, that body just just did that thing that got them that many points and a gold medal. So like, you know, mixed messaging to say the least. I really do think that if we can have different or any gender pair up, the idea that a woman has to be this petite balletic thing. And, you know, honestly, even in ballet, things are changing. They're working out more. They're gaining more muscle strength. So I can't even say that it's the balletic image anymore. It's, it, it's antiquated. And so I think that that's an area that this can hopefully help to heal. Yeah. I mean, I've had a number of women on the podcast, you know, talking about their experiences with how the pressure of needing to be thin enough and in every way you know, perfect enough, don't rock the boat, just be, you know, exactly who you're supposed to be because of the shortage of partners and how the the one thing that like structural piece that it has to be a man and there aren't enough men and all of this feeds into so many of the other issues. And I think we often, when we're talking about body image and eating disorders and injuries and all of these things, looking at that part, but not looking at the structural parts that are adding to those pressures. Yeah. I mean, I remember I, I'm pretty tall. I'm five, eight. And I remember having a conversation with the coach. This was like right towards the end of my trying to make that happen. And there were different elements that went into it for me that, you know, why I didn't, I didn't really move forward for me, but I just remember this conversation and I was asking like why this particular person wouldn't be a good match for me like why couldn't we skate together and the coach just sort of talking and talking talking saying all of these things and it took me like minutes to realize that what he was saying was that I I needed to lose weight and then he would recommend me to skate with him and the the coach was like dancing around it didn't want to like directly say it and I, I think back to that time and I was like well 
I had just been injured so I hadn't been skating for a little while and like I look at pictures of myself back then and like I was fine and like I don't know what it's like it's it's fine it, it's just this idea that it didn't matter because what I had been asking I had been asking am I good enough am I a good enough skater and then I realized that that wasn't even the conversation that was being had it didn't matter it didn't matter whether I was a good enough skater it was just that I needed to lose five pounds and I was like okay like if I started training with him I probably would you know <laughs> look that, that there's always going to be a certain thing that if you're having to be lifted and if you want to be strong you have to be fit but fit looks differently on lots of different bodies and I, I hope that's something that seems to be changing too slowly but changing yeah and I see both improvement and lots of places where it's ingrained. And so it's with <laughs> yes. that, you know, that ongoing conversation. But because so I'm an adult pair skater. And um, so that's my, as someone who, A, was always told that I was yeah. too tall to be a figure skater. Everything about my skating was shaped from that point of understanding that I had the wrong body for it, but, but I was doing it anyway. I don't think I was going to be some high level skater regardless. That wasn't where my life was going, but it really did, you know, negatively impact everything about my skating from that point. Now thinking about it from a perspective of being a pair skater and being the one doing the lifting and the throwing, like, yes, a height difference helps. We both have to be really strong. That part is not differentiated, but yeah, it helps to have the person who's doing the lifting and the throwing be taller with the way that we've learned to do these elements and the kinds of elements that we are prioritizing in the sport. And I always try to unpack that, this idea that, and I've talked to a number of pair coaches and pair skaters who have this idea that, okay, maybe this is going to work in dance, but I don't know if it's going to work in pairs because the height and weight difference is supposed to be more extreme in pairs. And I always keep coming back to that and saying, okay, A, height and weight difference does not equal gender. So can we talk about that? We've selected in the sport over and over and over again for a certain type of body. And then you select for pairs for a certain type of body, which part of the thing with recruiting the men is already that you've select, you start selecting at a young age for one kind of body for singles. And right. then you're like, oh, but hold on. Suddenly yeah. we need you to be also be tall and also have upper body. Like- so there's already that like narrowing that happens there. So you've all those things. And then on top of that, aren't there ways that you could learn to do the elements with a, maybe a little bit of a different technique if you're coming at it with, um, you know, with a different height difference and, you know, B, why are the number of revolutions you can do in the air yeah. the like be all and end all of the sport to begin with? So all of those different things, you know, you start trying to unpack. And despite that, I think we will see teams that are two men or two women. We've already seen a team that has a non-binary person and a woman on it. Like, But I think we will see more teams that um, can excel at pairs, even in its very traditional format. But I would love if these conversations also could help break apart that idea that you have to have um, one precise body type in order to succeed at it. A hundred percent. And I mean, look at different teams that exist currently. I mean, like, frankly, look at, at Timothy and their partner, Ashley. Like, the height difference between those two is not huge, completely outside of their gender identity. 
And so we're already seeing that different bodies can do these elements anyway. Now, I'm not a pair skater. I never, I never did that because I was too tall. So that was not a track I was ever going on. But like I say, I know of, we were just talking about a woman who's, she's super strong and she's, I mean, she's not big. She's, you know, she's not like very broad shouldered and whatnot, just able to, she's learned how to do press lifts. So it's like, it's possible. And I think the point here is that in the way I look at it with the question about whether to allow any gender teams in pairs is kind of why not? Like, okay, so maybe they'll all suck, but like, why not? So they'll come last in competitions. It'll be interesting to what? Why not? You know, obviously with safety and, you know, we don't want to have anyone do anything dangerous, but I just think that if it doesn't work, it doesn't work. But why do the rules have to restrain and limit that? And personally, I think it will work. We've, we have decades of data now showing that from young ages, boys and girls are trained differently. And if that starts to shift because there's no need for that, I don't see why we won't get some women who are able to lift women and some men who are able to lift other men or be lifted. Right. Just like any other piece of progress in the sport where you could say that 20 and 30 years ago, the idea that every man would have to be able to do a triple axel in order to get to a certain level of competitive skating, like most of them couldn't. And it's not that people's bodies have changed that much. It's that you start training differently once you know things are possible. Exactly. Exactly. Watching Maddie and Gabby, and I mean, like they only worked for like a few hours. To, like this is just at the beginning. And they were able to put together so many things. But then there were some things that they clearly couldn't figure out how to do. And they were like, you know, okay, maybe we need to get an outside, like someone to coach us through this. But there was not no moment of like, it's not going to be possible. It was just like, I've never done this before. I don't know how to do it. Yeah, we're going to have to take a look at how we're training people but that doesn't mean that that we can't take that look. Absolutely. I want to pivot a little bit to talking about your experience with ballroom and how some of these questions play out, you know, in that space. And I think in general, there's a lot to learn by comparing ice dance and ballroom. First of all, what would you say are some of the things that as you move from doing competitive ice dance to doing competitive ballroom that are similar or different between these as sports? Well, so I had always done a lot of dance growing up. I was very heavy into ballet and I'd done a lot of ballroom as well. So transitioning back to the floor didn't feel that foreign to me. The style that I competed and sort of had some success in is called American Smooth, which is a very fast growing style that kind of mixes a lot of the sort of more traditional ballroom styles that we that you might be used to seeing with sort of more contemporary movements as well. And so it felt actually quite familiar to ice dance. I think some of the differences really lie in the fact that it's not an Olympic sport. And I think that just flavors everything throughout skating, figure skating as well. There's a sort of this idea that there's this higher standard, however rightly or wrongly that is. And then also, you know, there's no lifting. So that kind of also changes some things. 
Ballroom is many steps ahead of the figure skating world in that there have been same gender competitions for years, not maybe as many years as some people would have liked, but it's it's been around for years, both in Europe and in the US. And then I think one of the other things is that it's an industry. It's, it's a world that, especially here in the United States, has managed to find this extremely unique way for athletes, for dancers to support themselves through their competitive years, through teaching and through doing what's called pro-am, professional amateur competition. So you'll have a professional dancing with like the equivalent of like an adult skater. And it's a whole scene. (laughs) It's a big little world. And it's a pretty great world. Like everyone's there to like, you know, people are serious about it. But um, everyone's there to have a good time as well. And I think there's a lot of positivity that goes around. It's, you know, just been a little bit more welcoming. Um, Something that's happened more recently is just inherently to the way our culture views dance in general, there are more women amateur dancers who get into it later in life, but not as children. And so for professional male dancers it's just like a little bit easier to have more clients more students and so what's kind of changed recently is you're starting to see female professionals dancing in the lead role with students and sometimes they'll be dressed in like a big sparkly awesome ball gown and sometimes they'll wear suits sometimes you'll see someone in the following role who feels more comfortable in the sort of traditionally male attire You know, there's a lot more steps in that direction that have already been taken. There's still more steps that can be taken, of course. But I think that that's another thing that figure skating can look to, that it's already been done. Yeah, I would love to see there be more in the adult ice dance and adult skating world in general that had some of what I think the aspects of that sort of social pieces to it. I've skated a little bit with the Ice Dance International group where they've had a social dance morning and you get skaters of so many different abilities pairing up together and just going through very basic patterns. But that idea of a shared vocabulary and being able to drop in and out as people fool around and twitching in and out of lead roles and just try skating with people you know, of different abilities or diff- different kinds of strengths. And it's really interesting to see. And I think it ends up being kind of challenging for everyone trying to figure out how to do those adjustments. So it's really nice. And it's some, something I'd love to see more of. And that idea that, you know, from my perception as an outsider, that it's maybe more seen as more of a normal, socially acceptable thing for somebody who is a little like an adult to, to start up dance as a hobby or skating. It's still sometimes seen as a little like, are you trying to recapture your dreams of being a little princess kid on the stage? Like, what are you? There isn't quite the same sense of it being, you know, culturally acceptable. Yeah, that's something that I think about a lot having been in the industry and I've taught, you know, people who've never taken a dance step before in their life. And I've taught high level competitors and done choreography and all of the things. And this thing that I'm just, that I came to be really fascinated by is like, we put as a culture, we put all of this effort and energy into putting our kids in music and dance and gymnastics and sports and all of these things. And then like after high school, Well, certainly after college, it's like, oh, no, no, you don't, you work, you have your job, no need for any cultural or like artistic or just emotional connectivity in that direction, you know, go to the gym, maybe. (laughs) 
And I think it's a huge mistake. You see people, especially when people are kind of going through a hard time in life, really find a just solace and a different side to themselves when they begin dancing. And I think you're absolutely right that I think it would be great if we could have more of that in figure skating. At first, for me, when I was first sort of seeing a woman professional leading a, a woman amateur or a student, my eyes were kind of like, oh, wow, that's that's weird. And then <laughs> and then within like 30 seconds, it was like, oh, no, that's normal. OK, fine. Moving on. <laughs> and I think, you know, just to kind of go back to this idea of like lead and follow, I think inherently there is a big difference in the way that ballroom by which I encompass like Latin dancing and all of the different um, styles as well. It's inherently different to skating. And in that, it is competed on the same floor with other couples. So you do not have the floor to yourself. So there is always going to be the need for someone to be directing in that, you know, sometimes you'll be dancing, you'll be doing your routine and someone is right where you need to be. And so you need to re-navigate and go, oh, we're going to change this choreography super fast and we're going to go over here instead. That doesn't necessarily happen in the same way in skating. Yes, you know, sometimes people will like switch around their jumps if something, you know, doesn't quite go right. But for the most part, you have your routine that you train all year long and, and you do it. Um, <laughs> so lead and follow becomes kind of a little bit of a different question in these two sports. And that's not going to change uh, unless, you know, <laughs> something much more drastic change. But I will say this, lead and follow are the words that we use. And I constantly buck against using them because it really is much more about connection. And having worked with several skaters now from the perspective of being a ballroom dancer, I really realize how much we don't use it enough in skating and it doesn't have to be lead and follow it just needs to be using one another in a way that has a sort of sort of call and response aspect to it uh, a conversation if you will and I don't think it needs to be like even if you just take a traditional team I don't think it needs to be like the man is the leader the, the woman is the follower like you can sort of switch that up in a way but it you should really find ways to use one another in, in, in much more dynamic ways. And I think that's something that, that I would love to see more of in skating um, to take from ballroom, because in ballroom, it's really expanded beyond this idea that, you know, the man leads and the lady looks pretty and twirls around. Like that's, that's just not where it's at anymore. Yeah, that's really fascinating. And I, and that's a really important perspective, I think, even on language, because one of the first changes that Skate Canada made was to change the language for ice dance and for tests from the man's role and the women's role to a lead and a follow as a step for inclusivity. Yeah. Baby steps. But <laughs> it's getting to that point that there's also a dynamic where those things are, you know, are more fluid and, and change more. And one of the things that I'm kind of excited to see for the, I think for the junior level this year, that part of the um, pattern dance is requiring the steps yeah. be first for each partner. And that'll be I'm interesting to see just from a technical level, but also just if teams choose to do interesting things with that as part of their programs. Yeah, I really hope so. And that was, that was another thing that kept coming up as well. It's like, 
with this perception that somehow men are male skaters are inherently better than female skaters I'm like uh we've been doing the harder roles in these compulsory dances for decades now um like I don't know about that I think that that's really interesting I I also hope that that we can do some interesting things with that um and I think that also you know and I sort of touched on this in the piece as well, is that it's only going to make you a stronger skater if you're able to do both roles. And the piece about, you know, about partnerships, I think that's something that even in the most simple things that I've learned about skating with a partner, first, we were really making sure we were counting and we had one person who was counting the steps and we knew what we were, you know, we kind of had to go in with a, with a plan or so we didn't run into each other. And then part of the transition of learning to become a better team and learning about how to skate with each other is to be able to do things like circle around and grab hands and then go into our pattern without having stopped and grabbed hands and counted and then like started off. And it's so simple, but the process of learning how to like there's rhythm and how to yeah. adjust with something's a little off and like all of that give and take is very interesting and it really is much more fluid as to who is it's not one person like all right we're going now and then there are other ones following it's much more evolved than that as it you've probably figured out like it it's a sensitivity you do have to learn it but it's also tapping into things that we learn from babyhood like we are the minute we start we open our eyes we're learning body language it's just the use of body language that's how I always see it and of course yes you are enhancing that in a very specific way but yeah it doesn't have to be gendered do ballroom dancers ever crash into each other because somebody is like no I'm going here or would that be seen as such a um, failure of your skill in the sport that you (laughs) don't do that (laughs) Well, yeah, no, I mean, listen, it happens, but it, it's not usually, I mean, I I guess, depending what level we're talking about, but it's not usually because (laughs) the partners are saying, no, we're going to go here to to this point. And that's something that I would say with my partner, if we had been like, there were many times where, I mean, he was very good and he would usually like guide us around the floor with no problem. Like I never felt like there was going to be issues, but there are one or two specific instances that I can at least remember where like I could see or I could feel that he hadn't seen for whatever reason he hadn't seen something and I was just like nope and I sort of like held up like held firm he instantly responded to that tension in my hand or arms or whatever and checked what was going on and we did whatever was needed to be to, to do that's again that comes back to my point it's a conversation you know it's communication and it doesn't have to be binary in any sense. Yeah, yeah, definitely. I always think it, it's funny that you know, you can watch teams training and nobody ever gets near to run into each other. But in the six minute warm up, you have so many close calls and it's just thinking yeah, like exactly. everyone is in there like the chicken of it. Like, yeah. no, um, I'm the strong team. I'm not going to be the one that's getting pushed around. <laughs> it's just yeah. sort of for sure. And that's the posturing of like competition, of course, you know, like you have to like present that persona the second you get on the floor or get on the ice. But if you've ever seen top training centers where most training centers have multiple top teams on the ice at the same time, 
and collisions happen just about never. So, you know, we're all very good. Like I said, we're all very good at reading body language. We know how to communicate with each other. It's something you learn and it doesn't have to be binary. I was curious what you think about the change with ice dance to sort of move away from having the pattern dance and more of the like broad themes, like the 80s as, you know, the rhythm dance. I mean, there's a little bit of a pattern dance in it, but it seems like I mean, this is maybe the most hotly debated thing in ice dance right now, but I'm I'm curious if you have a take on it. You know, I did step away from the skating world. And as you know, I'm I'm married to Jordan Cowan of On Ice Perspectives. So I haven't been able to completely step away from it. But I wouldn't be able to like sort of say very strong opinion either way. I will say this that. I think it's a little bit of a shame. I think that pattern dances do give us a really great foundation. It's what I grew up with. But on the other hand, since we're moving in the direction that we are, I think opening it up does seem to make sense. Having been in the ballroom world, like it's not like when they're doing cha-chas and waltzes, they're particularly authentic anyway. (laughs) So like, (laughs) might as well just be 80s. I mean, again, I'm excited to see what people can do with it. Anything that allows for more innovation, I would always support. When I had Caitlin Weaver on the podcast, one of the things that she suggested was that maybe there should be a judge for the rhythm dance who's coming from the dance world rather than the skating world right. to judge how are these tangos as tangos, you know, or how is this, is this cha-cha as a cha-cha? It's an interesting idea because there's a certain expectation that's set up, but theoretically ice dance judges are able to do that, but it's not quite sure where that actually is being evaluated within the scores. Yeah. Yeah, I agree. (laughs) Yeah, I think, I don't think like it doesn't have to be like perfectly authentic. I, I, you know, I certainly wouldn't want to make it sound like that, but since it's not going to be in my mind, I don't, you know, it doesn't need to be. So I think it probably won't be. How do we decide whether someone being more authentic is a good thing or a bad thing? Or is does it require more skill? Or what 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 does that matter in terms of points? Yeah, I don't know. <laughs> and then that leads into some of the questions when you get into talking about like authenticity versus innovation. And when we look at, you know, questions around cultural appropriation, which I think is something that is like some places in skating people are talking about, but a lot of places it's like very much not part of the conversation. And it comes up more with things like, you know, when a team chooses to do pieces of Indian traditional dance and then that, but that itself is very different than choosing to do a Bollywood program. But whether you're bringing in you have the expertise to be able to do it well and do the judges know how to judge it well and it gets complicated. Yeah, I think it's it really is its approach. You know, if you're like, oh yeah, I'm gonna like choose this song that I think is nice and I'm gonna do some like arms that I think are Bollywood arms and and that's it. I think that that should be limited. Um, But I think if someone's really gonna take the time to learn and try and bring it authenticity to it um, and honor that style you know like I was just speaking with Gabriela um, Pakpadakis you know they and she and Kion they they brought huge amounts of attention to their whacking routine and I think that when you honor something if you do your research I think that it would be lovely to have more types of dance on the ice 
let's be real. As it currently is, the demographic of this sport is largely white. And I hope that that changes very soon. But while it hasn't, I think that we really need to make sure that if we are going to be bringing other cultures onto the ice via, you know, white performers, white athletes, we need to make sure that we're we're doing the correct diligence to doing honor to that. I loved watching Tara Prasad do her free skate last year that she choreographed herself to the score of a Bollywood movie. And it was so interesting talking to her about why she wanted to do that and how like all the different thoughts they went into all the gestures. And I, yes, this like more of this, please. And that, you know, they're free skating. She had a very beautiful classical short program that she also choreographed in a completely different style. And it was wonderful to see like someone be able to be like, yes, here, this is part of like a culture that I resonate and this comes from my background and I can bring that to the ice, but also not being limited to only doing that either. Yeah, that's that's another side of that, of course. Yeah. We've talked about a bunch of different things, but is there anything that we haven't touched on that you would want to make sure that we get to? We have touched on a lot of different things. Circling back to the beginning of our conversation, I think that figure skating is this world that has so much potential for positivity and beauty because it is a sport i.e something that celebrates strength and control but it also is an art form and the ability to celebrate both sides of what what the human body what the human soul what the human mind can bring together i think it gives us space for so much progress and i am really excited that it seems that a lot of the governing bodies are now more open to this concept instead of having this um, controlled, gate-kept attitude that they did once have in the past. And I think that really comes down to the individuals that make up those governing bodies now and the changing times that we're in. I would just honestly personally add that I'm really grateful to have been sort of let in to be able to write this piece. And I would now love to do more in this area. It's not something that I, like if a few years ago you had said that I would be writing this and working on this and this would have all come together, I'd be like, what? No. (laughs) So as a cis straight person, I am very conscious of hoping that I'm doing right by the people that I'm writing for and writing about. So yeah, just a lot of gratitude. Yeah, well, it's wonderful. And I think just so looking forward to seeing how this story develops and how all of the other sort of things that can branch off from it develop. And thank you so much for taking the time to come on the podcast and to have this conversation. This was so wonderful. Thank you again. Thanks again to Talia for such an interesting conversation. You can look at the show notes for the transcript and links to more resources. You can follow Talia on Twitter at Talia Barrington. You can reach me with comments or suggestions by email at fsfuturepodcast at gmail.com or on Instagram and Twitter at futurefspodcast. Remember that you can join in the Future of Figure Skating and Anything GOE Joint Book Club by joining the Anything GOE Patreon at patreon.com slash anything GOE. I'd love to see you there. If you appreciate the podcast, you can also support my work with the tip jar at futureoffigureskating.pinecast.co. Remember to subscribe to the Future of Figure Skating podcast on whatever platform you use and share it with your friends.